This podcast is brought to you by Premiere, the UK's leading Christian media organisation. As we approach the end of our financial year, we want to remind you that podcasts like this are only possible due to the generosity of supporters like you. You could help reach millions of people throughout the year through shows just like this. Make your best gift today at premierchristianradio.plus. The Profile You're listening to Premier Christian Radio Hello and welcome to The Profile here on Premier Christian Radio with me, Anthony Aris Osula. The Profile is brought to you in association with Premier Christianity magazine If you'd like a free sample copy of the latest issue, which contains interviews with leading Christians, plus all the latest news, reviews and features, visit premierchristianity.com forward slash free sample. Today on The Profile, I'm speaking to Sean Bowles. Bowles is a prolific and contemporary prophet in the charismatic movement, long associated with the likes of Bob Jones, Paul Cain and Bethel's Bill Johnson, Bowles teaches Christians all over the world how to operate in the prophetic gift as an expression of God's heart. He's the founder of Expression 58 Church in the heart of Hollywood and is reaching everyone from A-list stars to the homeless of LA streets. Sean, in terms of your origin story, you know, if you if you could sum up, <laughs> what is the origin story of Sean Bolts? Where would you say it all began? What, what's your your start? You know, it, it actually is my parents' origin story because they were Catholics and they were kind of nominal Catholics. And then uh, my brother passed away, and when he passed away, it really drove them to seek after God. And they ended up in Los Angeles, California, actually Anaheim. And uh, it was before I was born, or I guess I was just a couple years old. And they they met this man who was leading uh, his theology department at Fuller Seminary. His name was John Wimber, and they, he invited them to go to his first home group. And this ended up being this church called the Vineyard Church Movement and Calvary Chapel Church Movement, which started the Jesus People Movement revival back in the 70s. And so I was raised around kind of that environment of people getting saved all the time and deep worship and just a heart for prayer, especially after healing. And people were just constantly being sensitive to, to what God was saying. So I was, I'm, I'm pretty young. So I was a little kid in that, in that environment, but my parents were like, you know, there's kids aren't really being honored here. So let's really invest into our kids and say, like, what's God showing you guys? What, what do you want to do with your life? And they were just, people asked me, who are your spiritual parents? My parents were my spiritual parents. They mentored me. That's kind of where it all started. I, I'm pretty normal in the sense that I wasn't, I, I, I'm not doing what I'm doing because of, you know, because I was born under a sign or something. I was just, I, you know, I was joking around about that. Oh. I, was like, I don't <laughs> have a birthmark on my bottom to show, you know, how, how I'm, I'm, I'm gifted from God to do something. I just pursued him and love for people because my parents loved us so well. And they were first generation Christians. So for them, they had a lot to work through and they were vulnerable with that process. And they would share with us that we don't know how to do this right. Pray with us, ask God to give us a model of discipline and like how to, cause we don't want to revert to what our parents did. So we want, we want God's model for our family. So we'd pray together every week. We had a Bible study every week. My parents led hundreds and hundreds of people to the Lord every year. My dad was a colonel in the air force 
And uh, they would have all the airmen come to a group every I – mean, they had six home groups a week probably. They were like in ministry at the same time. So we were around ministry environment all the time, but I was in the creative arts and in um, musical theater in school. Got a scholarship for college, was going to go after that, and then God apprehended me. So some people who brought – some people who were growing up in that sort of environment where, you know, they call them – sometimes we, we use the term PKs for pastors, yeah. kids, and ministries and stuff like that here – Sometimes it pushes them away. Or did you have like any wilderness years where you're like, I'm not going to be part of this church thing. It's a bit crazy. It's funny because my church in L.A. Uh, that I planted back in 2007, we've had over 85 pastors' kids from major movements come and spend time with us. And a lot of them are so involved. Wow. And it's funny because they have to go through the detox almost. Like I know enough to have to be saved but not enough to want to be saved. Or I know enough to have to go to church, but not enough to want to go to church. And so we've had um, – just a lot of relationship. As a matter of fact, most of my people on staff are pastor's kids. And I never went through that because I wasn't directly a pastor's kid. My my parents were in the world. They weren't really going to build. They didn't think about building a whole ministry. They just did ministry all the time and they included us in it. So from the time I was little, like my sister was on, you know, did worship with my mom and was on the worship team. And my other sister, you know, loved um, just all the outreach stuff that we did. And then I just, I, I love being around people. So it was very natural. Um, my wilderness would have been more like I wanted to go deeper than what we saw. And to my parents, they'd, they'd reached a plateau of this is the depth. And I was like, I just, I, there's always a deeper place in God. There's more. Mm. So what was the defining moment for you? What was that? When was that realization? I think I was 16 and I was at, a, you know, a traditional youth camp, you know, like one of the types of youth camp that we, if you're a church kid, you usually go to every year with your friends. And we had an NFL player, and I was into football. An NFL player came who was one of the ones who started Promise Keepers in America right before that, though. And he came, and he and he prophesied over me. And he, out of everybody in the room, he pointed me out and said, young man, you're an evangelist, and you're, and you're prophetic, and you're going to see a move of God in the arts entertainment arena. And God's giving you a heart for souls right now. And when he said that, I was filled in my spirit, and I could see the price Jesus paid on the cross. Like he had a joy set before him. And the joy that was set before him that I was supposed to focus on was people and entertainment and arts community. And so it just went so deep into my spirit and I wept and I've never, I had never cried publicly before. (laughs) (laughs) Great times like your first. (laughs) I I, I know I'm like in front of all my friends trying to be cool. But I mean, I wept for, I think two hours just over the people and that I could feel the compassion heart of God over people. And I just, it it just ruined me forever. Like in the, the most beautiful way where I, I was in touch with something that I still feel like it's my tribe when I'm around creative types, entertainment industry people, sports, athletes. I mean, like that's who I spend a majority of my time with is people just in entertainment. And I just, when I'm with them, I, I already had that experience of loving them in my heart. I've carried them in an intercession. So even if they're brand new to me, like a lot of that social awkwardness when you're meeting someone new, yeah. it's just gone. I just feel like you're my people. Like you're my family. Like I love you. And so that was probably the defining moment. Well, it seems quite contemporary now that you've got a lot of ministry, especially uh, churches like Hillsongs and the Justin Bieber Connection. So it seems to be quite a thing now for the church to embrace people in the mainstream in terms of singers, artists, actors, yeah. and all that jazz. But years ago, that wasn't always the case. So was that attention for you having a heart for what some churches would have seen as like, the world? Oh, and- it was so funny. I was a part of the International House of Prayer in Kansas City, which I love. And this is an international prayer movement. 
And I would say, let's let's do a whole prayer meeting because we did, you know, 24 hours a day on just entertainment industry. And they'd look at me like, what are you talking about? Why would we pray for them? They're all going to hell. And I'm like, that's why, you know, we got to see God position for popular culture. So it was always against the grain of everywhere I was. But when I moved to L.A., there are such incredible people there who and I've found them all around the world who've already been working in these industries. And so we came as a reinforcement. It was an original idea or it was not an original idea. And so when I started meeting them, I felt like we were we didn't have to pay the price of being people criticizing us or being mad at us. You know, I remember meeting my first two years that I was there, I met Pat Boone, who's one of the historic, iconic actors of the 1950s and 60s and singers, and, you know, had more platinum records than the Beach Boys, that kind of, and I meet him, and he tells me a spiritual journey through Hollywood and through the music industry, and we just cried together, and I looked at him, and I was just like, you've paid a price for a generation that now can emerge, like you were the only one in your generation, he led Sammy Davis Jr. to the Lord, he led Rock Hudson to the Lord, I mean, on his deathbed of AIDS, I mean, this man walked with God in a way that not many people ever have thought of as an A-list actor in the, the 1950s and 60s. So I've met, I've spent deep connected times with people who've been there, you know, fighting for this industry. And so I feel like I'm inheriting from them to be able to even, and like our generation's inheriting yeah. to even understand. Like the baton is being literally yeah, handed. Absolutely. He even said, I'm, I'm passing my baton to you because there's not, there's not anybody who understands us. Wow. As I'm passing my baton to you, do, do something with it. Wow. We're going to go into that a little bit later on in terms of the ministry to the entertainment industry and obviously we're talking about Expression 38, you know, your church in that in that region of LA. But before we get to that, in terms of your probably best known for operating in the prophetic gift, could you give us a little bit of a breakdown about how or when you discovered that gifting and what that journey was like? Yeah, I mean, we, we grew up in an environment where my parents were always like, let's include God in all of our decisions. Let's listen, do listening prayer. Let's ask the Holy Spirit what he wants to do in our lives. So they, my mom would regularly ask questions like, what's God showing you about your friends right now? Like it's, it's been hard lately. Like, cause we always went to public school. So what's going on? Like, like what is he showing you in life? And so it, it, my dad, I remember one time we were moving and, and he had, he was being stationed. He had three, three options, I think. And, and he said, let's pray excuse me, let's pray as a family and decide which option we're going to go in. And I remember just being like, I was nine and I'm thinking he's going to trust God in me to listen to God with him. So it was always part of our culture. And my parents were radical in how they pursued God. So they go to all those like Pentecostal charismatic, like tent meetings and like weird meetings. They would drag us along and 80% of them was like, you guys, I can see through this. I'm an 11 year old. Like, how can you not see through this? This is so cheesy and hokey. But every once in a while, there would be one that wasn't. And that was very connected to the Spirit of God. I'd see healings and things. So I had a hunger in me, but I also am so just normal that I was like, I, I didn't like the culture always around it. But when I was around 17, a woman started to disciple a group of us. And she heard from God really clearly. But she was very evangelical. She was very just normal evangelical. But it was like, you can grow faster if you see what God's doing. So let's pray and ask God. And so she'd bring people to the Lord. I mean, I, I watched that woman bring 700 people to the Lord through one-on-one prophetic evangelism, like just telling people, hey, I felt like you and your dad are having a hard time. His name's Mike. And God wants you to go home and tell Mike this. And all the time. So then it didn't occur to me that I could do this until about 200 times in where I was like, if she can do this, we can all do this. Like the Bible says in 1 Corinthians 14, verse 1, like eagerly desire prophecy as you're following love. So I started to go on a journey. I call it my prophetic journey of just like trying to discover. And in that, I mean, it was it was a decade before I I felt balanced and healthy, and it was a good expression. That, that gift has been so abused and so misused and so misunderstood in the church. And then it was another decade before I felt like I had authority to talk about it. 
And now we're modeling it in a lot of meetings. It's really funny because I'm in conservative evangelical churches. I'm in Pentecostal churches. I'm in charismatic churches. I'm in entertainment industry places. You know, I'm with business people. And I'm modeling it because I'm showing people that's available. That God has secret thoughts and innermost thoughts that he wants to relate to us. That we share the same headspace, the same mind of Christ, First Corinthians 2.16. So if we have that same mind, we should have his thoughts. God had original desires over humanity, over regions, over territories, over industries. So what are those thoughts? And I've, I've spent years just like doing listening prayers, just going, what are your thoughts about this, God? What do you care about? Like, not what the enemy is doing, not what humanity is doing wrong, but God, what did you want? Jesus paid too high a price for us not to manifest it. And he connected us. He said over and over, like John 16, the Holy Spirit will come and he'll speak to you. I take that literally. And I've, and I've seen God do some amazing things. What happens in a hundred counseling appointments or 50 life coaching times, or, you know, 10 of your most connected friendship times happens in one moment in the spirit through connection with God. So I just, I love the, the prophetic because of that. Back on the whole origin story, you know, comic book movies are in big and low now. <laughs> <laughs> and you always get the, the points where the heroes in their training wheels trying to not, but Spider-Man swinging on the rooftops and calling yeah. himself an injury. Were there any kind of moments where you were in your training wheel stage and you kind of took some risks and it was like, oh no, for this. Oh, it still happens all the time. But I think one of the hardest times was uh, I was with people who had a prophetic reputation. They were known as like more prophets in the church. And some of them had really credible reputation across denominations. And and I remember I kept getting invited to to minister with them, like from platforms or to major leaders or to, you know, Congress people or people in government people. And I felt like I had like the most baby version of a gift. And they would tell you the dream you had last night, what it means. You know, like even people who didn't know that it was a prophetic dream, they would tell them, and I remember just going, this is like not working. And I was so frustrated. I was like, God, don't give me an opportunity without the ability to be able to perform in the opportunity. And as a father, he's just like, I don't want you to perform. I want you to know me. And I was so frustrated that I didn't realize that that frustration was hunger. So I went through kind of a two-year dark period where I just felt so disconnected from what I was trying to connect to. And I remember crying out, God, I want to see you. I want to know you. I really want to know you. I want to, I want to be with you. Does that matter to you at all? And one day I heard him saying, I want it more than you do. Wow. And I was like, I don't know if I believe that. What's the scripture for that? You know, like the evangelical comes on and I hear John seventeen twenty four, and I had read John 17 in a long time. So I go in John 17 and I look at verse 24 and it's when Jesus was praying to the father saying, father, can you bring them with me where I am? Can they see you in your glory? And he prayed for us to be with him and connected and one with them before we ever thought of it. And I was like, everything I want, you wanted first. I'm just catching up to your desire. And it delivered me from this like striving performance intensity. And I went, you want everything I want because you put it in me. And I, you know, it sounds shallow to have a, uh, uh, a struggle with maybe, just deeper desire, but I did. I mean, I just had a, a, a deeper desire. I was like, will you ever meet this kind of desire? Are you ever this big? You know, is it just the mystics in Catholic history that had this, or can we have it too, you know? And I, I start to enter into, like, just a place of consistent connection with God that I just love. I'm thinking about, like, mentors and, you know, I guess people like who act in the, I guess, spiritual sense, like a midwife. People can usher you mm-hmm. into that gifting. Did any of them particularly take you under their wing and show you the ropes, you know, like you're a Mickey to your rock. They did. You know, it's funny because there's this one particular man, and he was like a latter rain. This, that's a movement that happened in the 19, it was a revival that happened in the 1940s uh, and 50s in America. It also happened in the UK. 
And um, so there's all these historic guys who came out of that. And this is one of the only ones who's left alive. And he he would call people out by word of knowledge. And he would say things. And he was known with the government. He addressed Congress seven times in America. He talked to seven of the presidents in his – or I'm sorry, five of the presidents in his lifetime and prophesied and prayed with them. And so he's really well-known and really well-established. And he – he he just he when he spoke it wasn't mysterious it was like you knew what God was thinking, and it was so beautiful and you just felt known by God. But I wanted a relationship with him. I was like, that's what I want. If I go after the prophetic, it has to be usable. But God gave me a relationship with an old Arkansas Hick prophet, who was you know if you ever heard of the ministry of Bethel Church in Redding, California, he was one of the inspirations for their school. He gave them a prophetic word about it, or the call ministries in America, which may not be may not admit it over here, but they do stadium gatherings with youth, and they've had um, over a million people now come to their events. You know, and and uh, the PTL ministries that had crashed the TV ministries. He gave a word to a man named Rick Joyner who was supposed to restore the property that they had developed with all that the money. Just the to clarify, the PTL was the backers, wasn't it? The bakers, the bakers yeah. Sorry, yeah. And so the there's bakers. another man who ended up restoring Jim Baker and actually restored Tammy Faye Baker and then restored the property. And this this prophet gave him the word that he was supposed to do this, this prophetic man. and But he spoke in parables and he spoke in like really weird – not bad weird, but just really like, I mean, I didn't understand him half the time. I remember he would sometimes tell me to interpret for him, like, t- tell the people what I'm saying. And I'm like, I have no idea what you're saying. I have no. So I wanted the more practical statesman, you know, like, this is normal. This is, and I, I my main mentors were, were him and another lady who were very parabolic and very mystical in a way. And, uh, and it took a while to figure out. But I, I realized Jesus spoke mostly in parables because he wanted to culturize us, not just to tell us what to do. He wanted us to, to own our relationship with him. So I learned more from being with this man. His name was Bob Jones. From being with this man because I was culturized by more of the intrigue, the mystery of God and the mystery of the word. He used the Bible. He knew the Bible like no one I know. I mean, he would he knew every scripture by heart for real. Like he would pull out scriptures that were like in Leviticus. So he'd be like, who knows that? He was brilliant. <laughs> deep cuts. Deep. Oh, my God. I'm like, you know, genealogies, why? You know, who knows that? But I learned so much through him. And I I wanted to learn through other man who I have a relationship with now. He's still alive. But I ended up spending my time with this man for seven years. And it really was the most mentoring I've ever had. But people had their biggest breakthroughs in life when they get around him, which I think that's what their prophecy is for, is that it's a tipping point gift. It's a gift that helps what God wants to usher you in. Your seasons change, you know, when you're, it's like from going from winter to spring when you're with somebody who is operating. It's like you hear the best news of your life. The gospel is supposed to be good news and the prophetic endorses that. I'm wondering how you reconcile Sean Bolt's, you know, standing in the prophetic gifting that you have in front of stadiums and large numbers of people in different churches, but you're also a, a gamer <laughs> and you're an author yeah, yeah. and you love the creative arts and stuff like that. Usually those worlds are usually like quite disparate. How do you mash those worlds together? But they're not, who you are? They have been, but they're not supposed to be. And as a matter of fact, everyone I've met in the entertainment industry, specifically Hollywood and the music industry, feels so spiritually connected. I mean, their their gifting comes out of us. Uh, out of a, even people who aren't saved will tell you, I feel so spiritual when I'm operating in this because it's what they were made for. And so, for me, uh, God first revealed His first identity in the Bible as Creator, and then He first anointed, He first released His Holy Spirit on Basilel, who was a creative genius, and He released the spirit of creativity to create everything He needed for His temple. So, the first time the Holy Spirit shows up to to fill somebody was a creative person. Wow! So, to me, like. You, you, they're they're not they're not irreconcilable. They're actually one and the same. Is like when you have the spirit of God on you, you are creative. 
you can't help it. Even if you don't feel like I'm a creative person, I'm saying you're still ingenuity as part of your, your blood, you're entrepreneurial, you're all of these things. When God's spirit is on you, when you have Jesus in your heart, you can't help but manifest the creative nature of God. So to me, most entertainers that I know are, are inherently prophetic and sensitive. How has that journey, that inroad back for Christianity to have an influence back into Hollywood, how has that really been working? I think I'm going to answer a very broad question in a very simple way, which is I feel like um, Christians have looked at the entertainment industry as the ugly stepchild that is rebellious and hard to deal with. And so let the other parent deal with it. Let God deal with it. I'm not going to be the parent of this thing. I'm just going to hope that they move out when they're 18. That's how we felt. Like, it's like we haven't adopted this industry in our heart. And I remember I went to this. We have honorary mayors in Hollywood every couple of years. And so one of them, he's not a Christian man, or he wasn't walking with God in a strong way at the time. I found out he was a Christian later. But he stood up in front of the city, and he put an adoption paper on the day he was inaugurated and said, I may only be the mayor for one term, but I promise to adopt you in my heart and care for you the rest of my life. I love this city. I'll bleed for the city. I remember just had this prompting of the Holy Spirit, like, have you adopted the city in your heart? Do you love this industry? Do you want to pay a price for this industry? Or are you a step-parent? Are you somebody who cares, but it's not really fully your responsibility. You're still waiting for me to take all the responsibility. And most people going in the entertainment industry go in to get something. They go in to get discovered, to get famous, to get, you know, but when you, when you're a Christian, you actually have a father or mother heart too, where it's like, I, I actually, the buck stops with me. I have to give something. I'm here to actually create opportunity. I'm not here to get a sugar daddy. I'm here to be a benefactor. I'm here to be a father or mother. And so I think that's a totally different mentality that only Christians have to offer. So if we realign ourselves back to, this is actually our child, not our stepchild. We have to, even if we have to adopt, we have to adopt this child, this entertainment industry. And when you love it that way, you have a lot more grace. So when you hear people who are saying they're Christians who then do something crazy, like the Kardashians, who I love, and then they do something crazy, like pose for Playboy or do whatever they do, you're not looking at it and going, you know, they're okay. Or you're not looking at it and going, oh, they're terrible. You're just going, I'm not responsible for the choices they make, but I am responsible to love them still. And I think that's the issue. A lot of people seem to be thinking to be seen with certain celebrities and to be in their world and to reach out to them it's like an endorsement like a stamp of endorsement both unfortunately both the world and the church seem to have that mindset or even endorsement culture it's like if you're with somebody you're endorsing but jesus was the best he spent time with all kinds of illegal people he shouldn't have spent time with the samaritan woman who's illegal to spend time with he spent time with prostitutes mary magdalene i mean people that Society didn't like. I remember being on the streets of Honolulu. I was doing a uh, school there, and um, we do a lot of red light district and war zone outreach. And so I'm in red light districts regularly, you know, just ministering to girls and pimps and whatever. And I remember I was in Honolulu, and they'd stuck me in a, a condominium, and down at the bottom was a red light district. It was a very nice area, but it was just, you know, weird. And so I, w- I would go to Subway every night because it was an Asian group, and they didn't know I was still hungry, and I couldn't communicate to my driver. So I, I'd go to Subway every night and get a sandwich. And so on the way there, the first night, there was a tranny um, uh, prostitute. And, I, and he's like, hey, hey, lover, you want something? And I'm like, no. And I was like, you know what? Can I pray with you for me? I'm a Christian. Do you need anything? Do you need any prayer? And he's like, oh, I totally need prayer. Oh, my dad's a pastor. Blah, 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 and just went through his whole life. And I hugged him. He's like weeping in my arms. And one of the church people like drove by and they saw me hugging this transvestite prostitute. And they're immediately like, is this okay? Or is this good? Or is this bad? Is it, it has to be ministry. And the guy's crying. Wow, that's cool. But that's, that's not okay. You should go by twos or whatever they have in their theology. Then the next night, they didn't say anything though. The next night, 
I was walking by and I administered to a group of um, homeless teenagers and two of them were trying to prostitute. And the girl gets radically saved. I actually put it in my Translating God book. The girl gets radically saved. That One of the boys gets radically saved. And I'm like hugging him and another car drives by and sees me ministering to these kids in the red light district. So the pastor confronts me and goes, what would your wife think if you were down in the red light district and you were da, da, da? And I go, I don't know we should call her. And so I literally didn't think about like I'm being you know, Matthew 19 or whatever, Matthew 18. And I call my wife and I go, hey, honey, I've been ministering to some kids down in the red light district every night, not on purpose. I'm just trying to get a sandwich. Do you care at all? Do you feel like weird about that? She's like, no, I know you. No. Why would I feel weird? And he goes, oh, my wife would never let me do that. I said, yeah, but you don't live a life where anything's possible through your faith and you would never go here in the first place for ministry. So you'd only go for one other thing. So you're avoiding it at all costs. In my heart, there's no nothing that's off limits unless I have a struggle in that area. I'll stay away from it. But I mean, there's nothing that's off limits. So we we're seeing a team right now. They're going to the porn convention next month to do a booth that says we will we we're here to love you, to interpret your dreams, to care about you. And this is their fourth year. Wow, amazing! I was to tell me about Expression Thirty Eight. I know you given the, the reins of the pastorship to a trusted friend. Yeah, my best friend. Yeah, great. so in terms of starting, because obviously that was a, com- a church in LA, particularly for the same type of communities that we've spoke about. What was the impetus for that and what were some of the adventures in starting that ministry? Well, it... <laughs> starting a church in LA we were told by the Barna group that the church statistics that's the hardest place to start a church so we were like yay and we started during the recession and during the writer's strike so reality television was birthed out of the writer's strike at that time 2007-2008 everything was reality television because there was no shows there was no series and so we moved there and we inherited this group of people I ended up moving into this like Hollywood old dilapidated mansion and uh, it, it was like a God story how we got there. It was so cool. And we started just opening up on Tuesday nights and just doing a Bible study and just sharing our hearts with people. And we had worship. One of the guys from Jesus Culture, Brian Turwalt, came out down and did an internship at the time. So he was leading worship for us with another guy named Zane. And God just would show up. He would just show up in people's lives. He, we we inherited, um, there's about five churches that blew apart because of weirdness. And we inherited leaders. We inherited all kinds of people. And so we grew to like 200 right away within the first year and a half. And it was the most dysfunctional but beautiful thing. It's like having a glorified youth group. Like it was like people in their 20s who were, were struggling with identity issues that you struggle with typically when you're 19, not when you're 25. Mm-hmm. You know, but but at the same time, they had empowerment. We had people who were in music industry and television and all these different things. And I learned so much about myself. Like that's when I learned like I can't manage people's holiness. I can't manage people's lives, but I can sure manage a culture of love and honor around an environment together. And so uh, the people that came to start the church with me, Honaton and Jennifer Toledo, it's actually called Expression 58 because it's Isaiah 58. Oh, sorry, 58. No, it's totally fine. And, um, they, and we, we realized that if we would honor like love and community but also take people on radical adventures into justice – then it would heal the narcissism that's, that happens in the entertainment industry. So we brought makeup artists to Africa, to leper colonies. You know, we brought we brought people from the most intense, like, Hollywood atmosphere who are coming off of drugs to Ecuador to minister. You know, like, so we've it, it changes someone's life when they go somewhere and they have to do something that's outside their grid to help people. And they're doing it not just in traditional missions. We call our, our missions on crack because – they, it's it's like you do so much. You have so many options when you go with us on a missions trip, and you see God move. So we some of the people's first experience on a missions field was like 
going and praying for the sick and seeing him healed in the red light district or whatever, you know, seeing a lot of healing, seeing a lot of lives change. We've written policy for several nations for anti-human trafficking laws. And so we've had this group, this cluster of people. We, we probably have about uh, two or 300 per service. So we're not a big church, but in LA, the average size church is 75. And there's only 4,000 churches. In Nashville, there's 4,000 churches. That's a million people. So it shows you in a city that has 9 million people plus 9 million undocumented people, we have only 4,000 churches, and our church is about six or 700 people. And um, and it's just a unique environment. So I think I, L.A. churches need each other, so there's not a lot of competition. We really love each other. And uh, I just think it's a beautiful, beautiful expression of God's heart. That brings us to the end of part one. But join us again in a moment to hear more from Sean Bowles. It's 500 years since Martin Luther hammered home his message that kick-started the Protestant Revolution. In the October edition of Premier Christianity, we ask what exactly did the Reformation do for us, featuring leading voices on both sides of the debate, a dialogue between a Catholic and Protestant on trading places, and a look at the women who influenced the movement, plus interviews with Christy Wimber on why she chose to close her thriving charismatic church, the family who have instituted tech-free Sundays, and stories of faith behind the bars of an immigration removal centre. Ask for your free sample copy at premierchristianity.com slash free sample. The Profile You're listening to Premier Christian Radio. Welcome back to The Profile here on Premier Christian Radio with me, Anthony Aris Osula. The Profile is brought to you in association with Premier Christianity magazine. If you'd like a free sample copy of the latest issue, which contains interviews with leading Christians, plus all the latest news, reviews and features, visit premierchristianity.com forward slash free sample. Today on The Profile, I'm speaking to Sean Bowles. Reading your book, uh, Translating God, it was a particular chapter I remember where you a door opened up for you to give a word to a dictator. Is that correct? Mm-hmm. Uh, tell us about that, and also <laughs> some of the crazy people that God has given you openings to to minister to. Well, this was yeah, this was I was in a doing a leadership camp in South America, and uh, we we're right on the border of a, another country. And there was a man who was in an internship with a pastor, and it kind of just a week internship wasn't long. And he it was the brother-in-law of the dictator of the country that was next door. And he came up to me afterwards, and no one had told me that. He just came up to me and told me, I want you to meet with my brother-in-law. You have to meet with him, but we have to fly by helicopter tonight, and you can't bring anything. And I'm like, well, what, are you, what are you talking about? And he goes, you've got to come with me. And so I talked to the pastors, and they were like, don't go. This guy's like evil. He's a murderer. He's terrible. Not the guy who was asking me, but the guy, his brother-in-law. And, I, and I'm like, I, I, okay, I won't go. That's that's crazy. Like we don't, we can't even vouch for your safety. We think this would be terrible. And that afternoon, I really felt like I was supposed to go. And so I went, <laughs> I went back to him. I was like, okay, I'll go. Well, black helicopter, like a black hawk down, like hel- helicopter shows up, <coughs> picks us up in this private field that we were driven to, takes us over. I have nothing with me at all. I have gum. You know, takes us over. We get frisked. We're just in a village, like just a Latin American village. And then there's a there's a tunnel system underneath that's miles long. And we go underneath this tunnel system and they're doing this whole planning down there. And I get down there and there's the dictator. There's like a I mean this like war general next to him that's just like this intense guy. There's all these people in the room. Everyone has like lots of guns and weapons and 
I walk in and he's like, oh, yeah, yeah, hi, hi. And my brother-in-law told me he wanted to pray with me. That's nice. You know, I really, I honor the pastors and men of God. And I, uh, but he's saying it all in Spanish. And I said, um, can we talk in English? I know you talk in English. I just knew just instinctively from God. And he's like, okay, okay, I'll talk in English instead of using an interpreter. So it was going to be one of those times where he's just being nice to his brother-in-law and then we're going to leave. And I looked at him and I said, does this mean anything to you? And I, I said this certain phrase. And he goes, how do you know this? And he gets really mad, really Guns mad. He goes, everybody leave, everybody leave. So I start leaving with everybody because I think like he wants us all to go. And he's like, not you, you come back. And so only the general guy next to him. And then <laughs> how he is your made heart his brother. Oh, I was like, <laughs> I don't know what I'm doing. I have no idea what I'm doing. So he, the general, I mean, his brother-in-law even leaves. So I'm alone with three men in the room. And he looks at me and I said, so what is this word? And he said, it's a, um, one of our most private, you know, secret mission or operations that we're doing. And I said, it doesn't have to do with trying to gain um, land back from another country that you think is entitled to you. And he said, yeah. And I said, God's not with you in this and it's going to fail. And you're one of the first people who's going to go to war with another nation in South America in a long time to get land. It's not going to work. And it's going to turn the eyes of nations on you and destroy your presidency. And he's like, I don't know. I don't know if I can believe you. I don't know if I can believe this. I said, this is not God's desire. And, and then I said, um, I said, I'm seeing like, I can't tell you what I was on the radio because it's just really course, dramatic. Yeah. But I said, I saw this name and it was his daughter's name. And I said, and I saw her birthday when she was 13 and what happened there. And I explained it to him and it wasn't, it wasn't as dramatic as you would imagine, but I just can't say it. And then he, he starts weeping. So this dictator, his men are so uncomfortably turned away and he's weeping and he goes, he goes, I've asked God forgiveness every day. And I said, well, he's saying, stop asking forgiveness. Walk in forgiveness. And you need to walk in forgiveness towards this other country and towards yourself. And you need to change. And he just was like, I can't believe this. I just can't believe this. So we prayed together. And I actually did the salvation prayer. And he, he prayed. I don't know if he got saved. Yeah. But I just did it just because I had the opportunity yeah, to. Yeah, why not? And, um, and at the end, he, he, he just goes, I feel so different. I feel so light. I just feel so light. I feel like the weight of years has come off me and it was so beautiful in that moment i'm just thinking like this is wild this is like crazy so he didn't go to war because of this he was going to actually go to war because of you know th- this plan and he got healed of an issue towards his daughter who was had so much resentment she was an adult at the time had so much resentment well when he when i was leaving he tried to give me a stack of cash and i laughed and said i'm not taking your money this is this i'm a i'm a christian this is a this is god coming through i could never take money for this and plus, it's probably illegal drug money. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> no I judgment, but so. past customs. <laughs> so, and then they fly me back over, and it was so bizarre. I just remember just going, "I'm just like this guy from you know at the time Kansas City. Like I, I was playing video games, you know, like yesterday. Like what's going on? You know, this is. I felt like a James Bond 007. I was like, what I was the heck? Say, espionage and all totally. That. I mean, like America never knew, like. You know, he's dead now. It's, you know, it's time has moved on. So I felt I could tell the story, but it was, it was crazy. Could have been an international incident. Totally. I, I, I hope I outlive everybody so I can tell all kinds of stories like that because I have so many fun stories. Well, there's somewhere else in your book where um, you, it stuck out to me. It's very, very poignant where it's like, I think you won't have any authority over what you don't love. Yeah. Um, and there was one particular story. I mean, I'll let you, you tell it for you better than I would, but 
about someone who was ministering to somebody in the industry and was able to show the change in their life but then obviously you hearing this high profile person being at the event and hearing them being berated well there yeah we're, we're in the midst of a culture shift so i had the opportunity to be with um one of the world's premier christians you know just speakers and uh pastors and and i was so excited that i came in a date early i was going to come in a date early so i can be in their session because they're only there for one session you know tens of thousands of people and i was going to be able to be in the green room with them i thought this is amazing i can't believe i got invited to this you know and so the night before i went to a hollywood bible study and one of the guys who was there um had just turned his life to god about a year ago he was a hollywood manager or an agent sorry and he um and he was telling me the story he's like hey last night was so cool or it was a couple of days before. Um, I got to go back. He, he used to manage a famous pop uh, star. I said, I got to go back and I got to um, watch one of her concerts. I hadn't been back in a year because of my drug addiction. I've, I've been clean for a year. And when I got saved, he got delivered of it. But he's still been walking it out with therapy and stuff. So he's like, I got to go back. And it was so cool. When I, when I went back, I went to the backstage and, and there was kind of some drug stuff happening on one side. So I went over to the other side and just sat on these couches. And she comes off the stage and she comes back. She sees me. She's like, oh, my gosh, what are you doing here? And he's freaking out. She's freaking out. She's like, why aren't you over there with the people he would normally would be with? And he goes, well, it's going to sound weird, but I found Jesus. And he was, wasn't was ashamed, but he was like said it kind of like funny. It's a cliche. Yeah, I know. This is, you're not going to believe me. She goes, no, if anybody found Jesus and changed them, I, I believe you. So tell me your story. I need to hear this story right now. So he tells her his whole testimony. And they're crying together. And she goes, will you pray for me? Because I'm close. I don't know if Jesus is the way, but I'm close to I'm. I know God's real. I know he's pursuing me. Could you pray for me? So they pray together. They're both crying. She's like, I just feel like I'm so close. Please keep praying for me. And he's like, totally. And so he leaves and he's telling me about it. And I'm like, yes, because this is someone I pray for. It's someone we, any Christian would know because of the damage they've done kind of through their sexuality and stuff in the industry. And um, so a lot of people are offended with this person. So so I go to the, the famous minister's meeting and uh, still loved it. It was a great meeting. But at one point, he randomly, because he has children, he randomly started to berate this particular pop idol and say basically like th- there's sens- a spirit of sensuality over the world right now that's coming from America because of this type of person and says it. And immediately I could just feel people like wanting to tell their children, stay away from her music and ah, she's the awful yeah. and she's evil and blah, blah, she's the devil. And I just, I was so grieved because I'm like, no, there's Christians on the wall. There's people who are like in her life right now. And if she sees all tweets that are like, this person's evil and this pastor said it, she's going to, she pays attention. Like celebrities do Google themselves. People do like, look at what the church is even saying about them. And it really does. I've talked to celebrities like, I I almost said a name, but I was at someone's house who would be really well known, um, woman who did. Uh, some light pornography and then came into the church and started becoming a Christian. And she, she was on a major, one of the biggest shows in the world. And I remember she told me like, uh, she goes, I was, I was doing good. And then all of a sudden I Googled myself and uh, with my manager, he wanted me to Google myself and all this stuff came up from Christians were like, she's not really safe. She's not this, she's not that. And she goes, I had to leave church. She goes, I'm still a Christian, but I would never go back to church to the most hateful people. And I'm like, no, the, the thing you don't want to hear. So in that moment when the pastor was saying that, I hear the Holy Spirit and he says, you'll never have authority of what you don't love. And if you speak over people, these kinds of things, publicly or privately, you'll never have authority to love them or have an audience with them. And the reality is they want audiences with people. They want to be with people who are authentic and real and will share the gospel and share who Jesus is and disciple them. But they don't feel safe. And I was like, oh, God, make me a safe place. Let me not say things about him because of the current controversy or whatever's going on. Lord, let me hold them in high esteem in my heart for your love. 
Well, I think we have this dichotomy of profane and the spiritual, mm-hmm. and often the whole entertainment industry and, and people in general who are in the, in the secular world are seen as profane. And, you know, Christians, we have our old subcultures, you know what I mean? Be it Pentecostal, Charismatic, Baptist, whatever denomination. In terms of embracing and engaging the secular world, especially when some people have a, spirit, a belief in spirituality where they don't want to get contaminated by the world and demonic and all that kind of yeah. stuff, is it overinflated, the spiritual dimension of the industry? Some people say, oh, everyone sold themselves to Satan or in the Illuminati and that kind of stuff. <laughs> What's your experience think, living in I think LA? it's easier for, for us to accuse people of being a part of some sort of satanic system to to put all the impact of human consequences and choice on the enemy is so much easier than dealing with the fact that there's people who are really gifted making billions of dollars doing something that we don't like. Mm-hmm. And I think, um, you know, Christians are, are keen to, like, draw out uh, dividing lines and enemy war zone lines. Like, what are we at war with? And it's just clear in the Bible, our, our show is not against flesh and blood. So the moment that Jay-Z is in the Illuminati, the moment that you say Justin Bieber is in the Illuminati or in the, a Mason or whatever, or his dad was a Mason or whatever it is, you know, you're creating an us and the mentality where you're saying that they're no longer safe to love. They're no longer safe for outreach. It's like Beyonce is dangerous now because she's part of a satanic system versus Beyonce is on a journey, a quest to figure out life in God. We have a lot of people who are offended with Oprah, you know, in the church. And we have a lot of people who we're, we're personally friends with who are, like, connected to Oprah and love her and have learned so much from her relationally. And it's just weird when you hear these, like, spinoff reports from some Pentecostal church that will say, Oprah is, you know, teaching this kind of doctrine. And because of that, she's destroying blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, no, Oprah's actively walking universalism and isn't claiming to be a born-again Christian. She's saying, I believe Jesus is important. I believe, you know, Christianity is important. But she's not saying I am a Christian necessarily, or if she's saying I'm a Christian, she's saying I'm a Christian that's open. And so you gotta you gotta put that where it is, but that doesn't mean you separate in love and protect yourself from her. It means that you protect yourself from the false doctrine that can come along with that. And I think sometimes we, we go into self protection, but we're mature enough, people are sophisticated enough to go, Oh, this tastes weird, I'm gonna spit it out. Yeah. But we're afraid, like a lot of pastors and leaders want to, want to manage everybody's belief system and we're not called to do that. We're called to, to, to help create an environment where people can manage their own belief system. And that's real. Like the the whole church is um, filled with pastors who feel like they have to. They have a messiah complex, and they have to, you know, make everything right and keep everything right. And God's healing us. He's he's sophisticating culture. It's kind of like racism right now, all over the world. Um, we now have enough psychology and understanding that racism intellectually is just stupid. And people have enough. And the same thing with with spirituality. When people are in the church long enough, they can they can see what's stupid and what's not. Control doesn't work the same way to the average person in the Western world. Like if, if your pastor is going to say, "Don't marry that person," you won't go. Oh my gosh, I have to listen to them. You're, you're going to go, but I want to, and I'm justified by my own faith, says Martin Luther. That's why I'm an evangelical. That this, you know, it's I'm not under a priesthood. I'm actually under God. And so just it's changed quite a bit in just even this generation to have the psychology and the, and the human awareness and development to where it's like things that used to work don't work anymore. So I think that that helps us to go, you know, if we can be spiritually intelligent for a minute, did Jesus come and die for them too? Then who cares what they're involved with? I have a responsibility to love, pray for them, and, and have their best interests in my heart and not care about what the enemy's doing but care about what God's doing. So, well, great point. And it's interesting. We talk about like the enemy and we've talked about sometimes when Christians are attacking the world, mm-hmm. be they big pop stars on an interesting spiritual journey or just certain communities, etc. But what about when we turn on ourselves 
uh, I know there was a conference, I think maybe a couple of years ago, of it called Strange Fire. I'm not gonna, <laughs> I don't want to go too deep into yeah. who organised and that kind of thing. But <laughs> how do you deal with the cessationist position and those prominent Christians who will call what you know uh, you would do, uh, Bethel, that kind of thing? They'd call that fraudulent or false or not of God, and it's quite very lofty charges. I mean, how does that make you feel? How does how would you respond to that? It's hard because the the man who you're referring to, John MacArthur, who I really love, and I think he's been such an asset to the body of Christ. And um, I, so much of his teaching is so important. And there's something I heard that he wrote Strange Fire, uh, the book, because he was laid up in bed and sick and watching Christian television and it offended him. And he's like, I'm going to research this, which I would have been, too, because a lot of what comes across in mainstream Christian media is crazy. It's crazy town, you know. It's weird perspectives, you know, like, let's hide from the apocalypse. God, show me this is going to happen, that kind of stuff. And so I, I understand um, the overreaction to imbalance. There's a lot of imbalances that need to be corrected and course corrected. But the problem is anything that happened in the Bible can still happen. And if we, if, if you decide God stopped doing those things, that was all just one contained period of time around Jesus and around John was the last one, who, you know, it all happened with, you're, you're discounting every major move of God that's happened since then where millions of people have been saved. These guys wouldn't have their ministries if it wasn't for a Jesus people movement or if it wasn't for the great outpouring at Angel's Temple in 1907 you know, to 14 or 18 or Catherine Coleman and you know all these different people in history who brought about even Billy Graham. He started as a healing minister and then he ended up you know, going after evangelism because the Lord said, "I can, you can heal thousands or you can bring millions to the Lord. What do you want to do? And I just feel, or Ryan Harbonke, who's brought 33 million people to the Lord. And it's because he sees healing evangelism. You know, it's his main thing. And Daniel Kalinde, who's taken over that ministry and is doing a fabulous job, good friend. I just feel like the moment you discount that God's power is working today, it's like, well, why, why would we look? I mean, if God has an original intention and it was for our health, for our well-being, for our life, why wouldn't he speak into that still? And just both use the word, but also his rhema. And there's all these words that you're just discounting a whole segment of the Bible. It's like you're not you're not coming to full salvation. You're coming to half salvation. And there's so much more for you. So what is, what is so, the like the lit, sorry to cut you, but what is like the litmus test? Like if it's healing, supernatural healing, you know, you'd say go to the doctor and verify it. Yeah. You know, in terms of accountability, and I think a lot of things are claimed, be it healings or certain big credit words and often the, the questions the skeptics have is you know how do we where's the check and balances or how do we verify information i mean is in the circles that you've moved in is there any kind of real sense of we are able to people who can vouch for certain messages prophetic words and especially word of knowledge and vouch for things in a way to sort of uh, protect against some of yeah. those it's a great question attacks. i think one of the things i wrote in translating god was a, um, a, a prophetic approach of accountability especially in the workbook because there hasn't been accountability. It's been like a free-for-all Wild West of America-type, you know, mm -hmm. mentality. So someone could say, there's going to be an earthquake in this city, like in L.A., that's been prophesied over and over and over, and it didn't happen. And then you ask them, well, are you going to retract it? Are you going to repent for it? And they're like, no, people prayed and it stopped. I'm like, you phlegmatically said God's going to judge this, and you're saying you changed God's heart somehow? You know, you don't even live there. You don't care about it, but you're prophesying this. So what we've done and what we've developed with people is just some prophetic, again, prophetic intelligence. We use that word. Um, can you track the words you're getting? When you get a word for somebody, if you're saying, I feel like there's a transition you're going to move sometime soon, 
do you go back and track with them soon over the next eight months and say, hey, did that word come true? Did anything happen from that? If it didn't, I take responsibility. I'm so sorry. I'm learning. I'm growing right now. And there hasn't been that freedom to have the humility to grow. And everything else is evaluation, but not in the prophetic or not in healing. And healing is getting better. Like Randy Clark's ministry in America, they they do a lot of tracking now, medical tracking, and they're only putting forth reports of things that have been medically documented now. That's what they're – they might report in the meeting, hey, this person's feeling better. They feel they were healed of something, but they won't report it until they have a medical verification, which I think is such a great inc- uh, credibility for, for healing ministry because then you have like a doctor saying it happened. Mm-hmm. Well, the prophetic needs the same thing. We just need that kind of accountability to say – um, I, and I have people, you know, pastors I've been under who can say, Sean's predicted this kind of thing, this kind of thing, this kind of thing. This is where he's been accurate. These are some of the stories. And the other thing with the prophetic is that people tell their own stories over and over and over. And you don't necessarily hear the same stories from the people they gave it to. So it, it becomes very sensational mm-hmm. versus a building gift that helps people, like I said, enter into a tipping point or a breakthrough that's very trackable. We should be able to track everything we prophesy. If you prophesy something about the future, it's very trackable. You should be able to say this worked and this worked. Psychics do it. Mm-hmm. You know, mediums do it. They, they predict something and then they, they have a track record. So like if you call up the psychic hotline locally, I'm sure there is one, you could ask them what's your track record and they'll tell you a percentage, 27%, 60%, whatever. Well, Christians, we should be able to track and then we should make different decisions based on maybe I don't have authority to hear or listen about this yet. So I'm going to I'm gonna maybe just write this down when I get I'm not going to submit it to anybody. I'm just going to submit it to my team or my church. Or maybe, you know, with this, I have one lady who she prophesies things about nations all the time. And I, I, after she read my book, she goes, I've never tracked anything. I said, you should track. So it's been a year and a half she's been tracking now since she read the book. And she's realizing I'm only about 50% on. Uh, oh, that's yeah. a wake-up call. But I think, you know, have you ever been in, like, some bad worship services where it's terrible? Oh, yeah. Think about people who've never been in a united, you know, uh, Hillsong worship time or they've never heard Israel how they've never heard something that's really good that like carries like where you get so caught up into it you're like in a trance because you're so focused on God when you hear the real you forget all the bad keyboard playing you ever heard when you hear the real music that what worship's supposed to be everything else is lesser and you'll only listen to the real and the thing is people are going to start to hear God as they're hungry for him and they'll forget all their bad experiences with everything else that was weird and manipulative and you know gross and unfortunately we're humans so we, we you know different people are carrying things different ways and they carry it really bad and the prophetic because it has had no accountability for so long there's been crazy things that have happened but as soon as someone has a real thing that happens they forget because the beauty of the real is so real what would you want your legacy to be in terms of like you know when you you know the yeah. end, what's the end goal you know seeing all the things you want to see come to fruition from your life I have two two big ones and one of them would be the entertainment industry that the church would begin to partner with God's heart there and I think I'm one of many people who are who are sharing that message but I think uh, I represent a bridge to a, a generation of people who are starting to see like this is popular culture changes culture let's partner with God's heart over popular culture to change everything I believe it's going to be the forerunning of the next big move of God the next great awakening so to speak the second thing would be, I just love John ten ten, where Jesus said, I came to give you life and life abundantly. And it's a ridiculous abundant life here on earth. We only have one life to live. So how can we live in our fullness? And I think when we hear God and we see the Father's original design or intention that Jesus paid a price for, we can't help but to live a fulfilled, thriving life that's cool. That's, I mean, it's amazing. I love my life. 
I've never had depression since I've lived this way. I've never had any kind of, I've never looked back. I don't have weird times. I mean, like to me, holiness isn't sinlessness. It's protecting what you love at all costs. Like I love my relationship with God. It's so easy to protect. And so I think like, I'm going to leave a legacy of like connection to God in a real way, a spiritual, deeply rooted way, but that's practical, you know? So we're not weird with the world, but we actually understand our role. So we're not, we don't have this weird divisive relationship, but we have this inclusive relationship with what God's doing. Well, speaking of, you know, talk about legacy, but, you know, you've got a long time to go yet, God willing. We, we will, you know, we're, we're young men. <laughs> you're <laughs> yes. a young man. But in terms of the adventures between, you know, now and, you know, when you're thinking about legacy, what are some of the adventures, some of the things that you haven't done yet that are in your heart to do? You know, I want to do more with um, TV and film. And I mean, I'm, I'm a creator at heart. I've, I've write young adult fiction stuff. I've never published any of it yet. I had a publisher for some of it. I'm, I'm deciding if I'm going to do it. It's like the next Twilight type thing. Kind of, right? yeah. It's supernatural thriller stuff. And so I love young adult fiction and I love how it turns into movies or TV shows. So I want to work in, into some of my own creative projects and I work on the creative and not just the ministry end, which is good. I used to do creative writing for a video game industry. So it's, you know, it's not too far off. And um, and then as far as the the big spiritual picture, I want to develop, and I've been developing um, uh, coalitions amongst entertainment people who are working in secular industries around the world. And there's some great ministries, but they don't really know each other well. They just know of each other and figure out ways that they could partner more. So actors, models, talent for Christ with the models for Christ. You know, like uh, the the athletes in action with all the other athletic groups, like all these different groups, like bringing them together and building a context for how they can support and champion each other with peer to peer relationship. And we're doing that right now with emerging pastors. I have about 80 emerging pastors in different nations like Dubai and Brazil. They're like leading like the Jesus culture of Brazil called Dunamis. You know, they all get together like once a year and they just support each other, pray for each other, like go after it. And, and watching that and then seeing that happen in a greater level with the entertainment industry is going to be really fun. So just building coalition, building alliance, building, networks outside of normal networks and i love the arts because they're the they're the common denominator like people are singing in conservative cessationist churches brian and katie to roll jesus culture songs holy spirit we welcome you here you know come fill the atmosphere you know they're singing that but they don't know what they're singing but they like worship like i have a children's curriculum it's going in the most conservative churches and it's about how to hear god's voice you know growing up with god and i think like the arts and like children's ministry, worship, and the arts, they're all like the common animators that bring everybody together. So I think it's going to be really fun to, to build unity out of the arts. I can't let you leave without asking this as you are, you're in the UK or in London. Is there anything in your heart for, you know, UK? I'm not trying to blag a word from you, but anything <laughs> for the UK or anything in your heart that comes to mind when you come here and the people in London or the wider UK, anything that you feel, you know, God's heart for us? Yeah, I do. I mean, I, I I love the UK. It's one of my favorite countries, and I think it's a steering country for so many things still. I think my heart for UK right now would say, uh, you know, before there's ever a breakout of God activity, there's always a dark period. And I think the, the promises that God has on United Kingdom in history, I would look at the United Kingdom like more like a, a teenager in those promises, not a full-grown adult. And, and I believe that God, teenagers go through rebellious periods. They go through awkward periods. They go through identity lessons. They go through, you know, identity learning periods. And you don't treat a teenager who's rebelling the same as you treat like your wife who's 45, who's rebelling. You're like, I'm leaving you because you're having affairs. A teenager's exploring. And I feel like there's some rebellion in the UK that God is having mercy on and kindness and his gentle nature is coming towards. 
And right before one of the, the greatest seasons of identity and breakthrough, I believe that the enemy is trying to do everything he can to distract people from God and from the goodness of God. And so I think it's an awkward teenage phase that that, that as England and as the UK develops into identity, they're going to steer the world into identity and some beautiful things. And I really believe that a lot of the foreign uh, uh, immigrants and people who have come here are holding spiritual ground for morality and for there being a moral compass. And I think that the Lord sent in people groups like the African church and just different churches that are holding ground that are, that are helping this identity process come into maturity. And so I'm really excited about where England is at, where the UK is at, because, and I say both of those separate into one, because, um, within five or 10 years, I believe there's going to be such a, such a release of identity and kind of a re- reformation again in the church that then that can, it can touch the world again as a, a world leader spiritually in a major way again. Is there anything, Sean? How can we follow you? Can you let us know what your handles are? Yeah, Facebook. It's just Sean Bowles. Uh, it's the public page of Sean Bowles. Uh, I'm on Twitter, Sean Bowles. I'm on everything, Sean Bowles. But also our BowlesMinistries.com. You can get my books on Amazon UK, which is great. So my books are available. Um, but yeah, follow me and, and come join our journey. It's really fun. That's all we've got time for on today's show. But if you'd like to listen again or hear other interviews, why not download The Profile Podcast? Just visit our website, premierchristianradio.com forward slash The Profile. 